This is Reasonable Doubt with your hosts, Mark Garrigus and Gary Smith. Well, welcome to the big show. And why do we have the big guest? We have Sarah Azari returning. Sarah, how are you? Good, Mark. How are you? It's always good to be with you guys. It's always good to see you. I thought when I was, Gary and I were talking about guests, I said, you know, I thought I was done with Murdoch, but on my Twitter feed, it is Sarah doing battle over Murdoch post-Murdoch. It's unbelievable. Well, no, Sarah is being terrorized, (laughs) terrorized over Murdoch. (laughs) So do you want to set it up for those who aren't in the weeds, who thought that he was already sentenced and gone, we're not talking Murdoch anymore? I mean, look, uh, there's so many issues pending. Obviously, he has the appeal. Uh, his attorneys have made a motion to uh, for attorney's fees against the receivership. I mean, it's peanuts. It's $160,000, which obviously you and I both know that I mean, the transcripts alone cost $26,000. Um, there's, you know, all of the financial crimes. There's uh, a, going to be an investigation into any potential jury misconduct. I mean, there's a slew of things, you know, and then the Stephen Smith uh, issue that really, frankly, Mark, you know, it would have been a local. I mean, listen, I'm all for Miss Smith getting closure. It, it's it's horrible to lose your son and not know what really happened. But Sled has come out and said that this was a murder, that this was not a hit and run. And yet, you know, this story got legs because of the rumor that Buster Murdoch was somehow connected to the death. So, you know, how many roadside things do we have happening around the country that never get national headlines? The only reason it made headlines is because of the Murdoch. So there's all these like, you know, um, side stories that that started with rumors and lies and defamatory uh, stories that ran on podcasts and documentaries. And those are still going. And that's what I was going to say is that, I mean, it seems that a cottage cottage industry has sprung up here. And as soon as it looked like that industry was starting to go away, now all of a sudden everyone in that world is, is just clamoring over this. Yeah. It's like the economy of Murdoch, you know, so many people have uh, made a name, got a Twitter check Mark, you know, selling merchandise. I mean, it's, it's, Quite interesting, and, so, that, you know, the and then there was a GoFundMe, right? On the explain that the GoFundMe uh, for Stephen Smith. Yeah, yeah. So that's really interesting because Sandy Smith. I mean, this is not the first GoFundMe in this case. So you had the Shelley, uh, I think Shelley Smith, the the mother's uh, Murdoch's mom's uh, caretaker. She had a GoFundMe right after her testimony. Um, another person, I can't remember now, during the trial started a GoFundMe. And then you have Stephen Smith's mother who did a GoFundMe with a $15,000 goal to raise money to exhume his body. Um, last I checked, she was at $90,000. Yeah. Uh, the claim is that she's going to give this money to scholarship because she doesn't need all this money. Um, I, I don't know because... People that have looked into it, there's no scholarship set up yet. Uh, So it's unclear, you know, what's happening, if the lawyers are getting paid. But, you know, look, I mean, I'm asking you this, Mark. Uh, Number one, in South Carolina, to exhume a body, I mean, there's no statutory mechanism to get an order for this, okay? But a 1915 case says that the body is so holy that it is to be left undisturbed even when it's earth to earth, dust to dust, that kind of thing. And it cites to the Bible. So now that Sled has said this was a murder, I mean, what more can you gain by digging up a body that's been embalmed and buried for eight years? Like what, what else can you find out even if you did get this order? Yeah, it's uh, the whole thing is wild. And, and I'm not so sure there's a, that I, I tend to agree with you, but for kind of the mania surrounding the the father, you wouldn't, basically they're visiting the sins of the father upon the son. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, and by the way, the son is a victim. The son has lost. Well, that's, yeah, we lost sight of that during this trial. I mean, people were excoriating him for sitting behind his father. Yeah. People were excoriating him for not being supportive, if you will, supportive of the prosecution of his father. 
they've lost complete sight of what of who truly was the victim. Well, and then the Chirons, you know, when they run the Stephen Smith story, they say, "Is he the next Murdoch murderer?" What? Based on what? I mean. It's all rumor that he was even connected with this death. But, you know, you know, the guy's trying to find a job. He can't find a job. And I wonder why, you know, um, he's completely been tarnished. And then, you know, you lose your parents, you lose your brother. And I mean, you know, Alec is in prison for the rest of his life. His mom's dead. His brother's dead. And all he got, Mark, is $530,000. I mean, he doesn't have it yet, but that's all he's walking away with because he, um, essentially settled the boating accident lawsuit. Um, he was also sued uh, for giving his brother his ID to go get beer or whatever the cause then caused the, you know, the boating. Yeah, accident. Who would, can you imagine anybody ever doing that? I don't know. I was, I would use my sister's ID to go to clubs, you know, back in the day. I, I, I did. I got away with ID. <laughs> but anyway, so he, he wanted to get rid of the lawsuit. So all he's getting is $530,000. It's a, I mean, I feel terrible for this guy, you know? Yeah, it's, it's awful. So before we let you go, I, there was something that I wanted Gary to show you. And I want, I want to get your reaction to this. This is a, 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 a the setup is, this is a Senate hearing on a uh, nominee for the district court. And, I believe it. Uh, this gentleman is a magistrate currently. Have oh, he's a magistrate. No, I'm... I think he's a U.S. magistrate. This is a guy I generally do not agree with, Senator Kennedy, but right. he is a trial lawyer. But um, uh, I look at what he does with this gentleman. Tell me how you analyze a Brady motion. How I analyze a Brady motion? Yes, uh, Senator. In my uh... Four and a half years on the bench. I'm not. Don't believe I've had the occasion to uh, address a Brady uh, motion in my career. Do you know what a Brady motion is, uh, Senator? Uh, in my time on the bench, I've not had occasion to address that, and so uh, it's not coming to mind at the moment what a Brady motion is. Um, do you recall the U.S. Supreme Court case Brady v. Maryland? Uh, I do recall uh, the name of the case, the Senator. Yes. And what did it hold? I believe that the uh, Brady case, uh, in, well, Senator, I believe the Brady case involves something regarding the Second Amendment. It is not, I've not had occasion to address that. If that issue were to come before me, uh, I would certainly analyze that Supreme Court precedent uh, and apply it uh, as I would need to to the facts in front of me. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> I know. This can't be real. I know. I, I, I don't know what to say. Before Sunday, the Sunday show, I'm going to do a little research. I do not understand if it's true as reported that he's a magistrate judge. I don't get it. How do you? I just don't get. How you don't you're even have to be a bench. judge. No, I know that. Well, that's I, <laughs> that's the sad I mean, part. I understand, I understand. I understand. He's never, as a magistrate, had a Brady issue, maybe, um, but as a law school graduate. <laughs> I mean, how do you not know? It's like the one case you always remember, whether you work in that field or not. The Brady Bunch? I don't know. This is crazy. The what, what's so friend. crazy is for those who listen to this show, they know that my dogs are Brady and Jiglio. So it's just, uh, you know, I it's I, I know that I'm biased, but I, given the fact, this is kind of my thought process on this. Given the fact that criminal takes precedence over civil, and given the fact that criminal is the lion's share then of your calendar, it yeah. would strike me as that you should – That and by the way, if you're prepped for your hearing, you would know Booker, Apprendi, Brady, Jiglio. I mean, Jiglio, no, yeah. Cunning, yeah. Cunningham. I mean, I, I would think you would know these cases. I mean – yeah, and, and Brady is even more so than, than Booker and Jiglio. It's, it's, it's like – it's monumental. I mean, it's it's what you never forget from your law school experience, right? And the in second, so many ways, Brady is what differentiates the prosecutor's duty from the defense. I mean, the defense, as you know, zealously defend. But what's Brady? 
Right. It's unbelievable. And uh, I mean, I, I look, being a magistrate judge, you're usually dealing with detention and, and things like that. I get that he may not have had the issue that he like presided over the issue, but, or decided the issue, but uh, to not know it is outrageous. This has to be real though, Mark, right? I, I have no reason to doubt it. I will tell you, but I have used um, a Brady in the context of detention hearings, which I'm sure you have as well. Which I mean, I I just the, the whole thing makes no sense. There's got to be more to it because it cannot be this. This just it's breathtaking. Is is I guess what I'm saying. You got to keep me posted as to what you find out. I will. I will. If it's really good, I'm bringing you back Sunday. Okay. Yes. Yeah, please. Okay. Now I know. By the way, I know you had a hot date. Thank you for. Uh, no, I'm going to birthday party. It. A birthday party. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Sarah. I'll see you. Have a good weekend. Good to you, see you, Sarah. Guys. Bye. 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 Uh, welcome to our next guest, our very own uh, reasonable doubt top G, Tina Glandian, who's. Uh, not only, you know, somebody had commented, Tina, that you uh, only represent alpha males, and um, I'm going to, I'm going to tick them. As off. my latest client, how do you feel about that statement? I, I want, I like that. I embrace it, and um, we're going to talk about your your other client first, and then we'll talk about your latest client. Your other client, obviously, for those who don't know or are living under a rock, are the Tate brothers who are being held uh, in in. I guess incommunicado would not be accurate, but they are clearly in custody in Romania. With yes, with limited, very limited communication, um, they are still in preventative arrest in Romania um, since now the end of December, and so they just actually had their la- their fourth extension granted the prosecutor's fourth extension last week, which was really disappointing. So we have a couple things coming up this week. Um, about 10 days ago, our team had made an application for bail, basically for each of the brothers separately, but on the same grounds that preventative arrest at this point is unnecessarily harsh. Um, there are other options there, such as house arrest, and that at the very least, they should be allowed out on one of those um, grounds. And the court rejected that. Separately, the prosecution did make their application to extend their detention until the end of April, which was granted. Again, what's most frustrating is in all of this, there's been not only no charges filed, but no new evidence, no new um, alleged victims, nothing nothing like that. They just have extended it on some perceived um, argument that they are going to flee or that they are... Um, kind of a danger to public order. So we have two hearings coming up this next week. We're appealing both of those rulings. There's a hearing on Tuesday, the 28th, and that's the hearing on the denial of the bail. And then there's another hearing on Friday, and that's to appeal the extension of the detention. Are we going to see you again in Romania? Uh, we'll see. Um, unfortunately, when I'm there now, I can't participate in these hearings. So um, I'll be there if needed, but... For now, we're letting the the Romanian team handle it. Uh, one, where, where is the U.S. embassy in all of this? I mean, that's something that that to me, you you know, if it's a cause celeb, uh, that usually, like anything else in life, and clearly in the criminal law, uh, I've talked about it for almost ten years on this show. The the when there's uh, sunlight or tra- or or any uh, something like that, you tend to get more action. So, where are we with that? The embassy has finally taken some interest in this case. I think they've seen how prolonged this detention has been. And so they have now gotten involved. And that's a process that we're hoping really puts some pressure on and gets the brothers out. There's the case, I don't know if you guys followed the Brittany Griner case, but that was one where the embassy ended up. And that took a while, too, in that case. I think I think it was about eight months into her detention that they were able to finally trade her and do a, a kind of a prisoner swap or to get you know, her out. it's interesting in that case. I was talking to somebody today about it. The, uh, the focus in that case was on Brittany as it should be obviously as the American citizen, but you know, there is a, there is a viewpoint of that, that really what was the thing that got that going was 
the fact that the lawyer, and I wish I had his name, I'd give him a shout out. He was a New York lawyer uh, for Victor Bout or Boat, who was the arms dealer who had been sentenced, I believe, in the uh, New York federal court. He had really kind of mapped out a course of action. And and I think, uh, I don't know that he wants the credit or nothing else, but I certainly would would say or take the position that he was one of the main architects and got this thing going, if you will, because that was very controversial controversial after the fact, but it remains that he was traded uh, for Brittany. I can help you out there. It's Steve Zizu, according to uh, what I find on the internet, a Queens-based lawyer. Yes. So Steve, shout out to you. I'm going to give you credit because I think you had a lot more to do with this than uh, people give you, give any credit to. But one thing to note is, well, in that case, it's, it's interesting because that was somebody who had actually been convicted. And here we we're talking about a situation where the Tate brothers haven't even been charged with any crimes. So it's. So how do you just keep somebody in custody if you're a member in the, one of the European Union nations, Without charges for what four thirty day periods, so one hundred and twenty days. I mean, in the U.S., so that you understand, we've got a right to speedy trial, and in state court, that generally is going to be sixty days of after a probable cause proceeding. Federal court is seventy some odd days. Yeah, so you you can go to trial here before you can be charged in Romania. Again, they have that entire six month period, so. We're coming up on the 120 at the end of April, but they could still, in theory, extend it two additional times. So they get to extend for up to a total of six months without charging files, uh, without, I'm sorry, filing charges, which for us is a crazy, a crazy procedure. And at that point, yeah. what what would happen if we did get to the 180 days, then would they, they would either have to file charges or let them go? Or is there a third, a third yes. door? Yes, well, they would. They would have to either file charges or let them go. But if they do file charges, they get to again um, detain them. I think how it works there is they get to detain them for if they still find them to be a risk. So assuming they maintain the position that they have been taking this entire time, they could theoretically hold them for half of the potential sentence of the crimes that they'll, they'll be charged with, that they would be charged with. Half of the sentence, meaning the ultimate sentence, their maximum? Exactly. Okay. That, that's something. Whoa. Okay. Then, Tina, we, Gary, I'm sorry, Gary, you had a no, question? No, no, I was just, that, that was a surprising answer. That seems, that seems like a lot of, a lot of latitude. It's a lot of, yes, and it's a lot of time. It's a lot of time somebody could be detained without a conviction. So between the six months that they can hold somebody without filing charges and then the, of the potential sentence. That's a very lengthy detention, again, for somebody who hasn't been convicted of crimes. That's just wild. Now, speaking of um, other alpha males that you represent, you filed another lawsuit today? It was two days ago on the 22nd. Okay. And that would be? On behalf of you, Mr. Garagos. And we're not waiving any attorney-client privilege, but I'll ask you, Gary, do you have the Bloomberg headline on this uh, this case? I, You know, my pet peeve in life after 40 years is that I'm, uh, anybody who's listening to this knows when I'm referred to as a celebrity lawyer, but uh, the, the, I the guess, headline. yeah, that is the headline in this, uh, this article. So why don't you, um, uh, there you go, celebrity attorney sues LA Times over Armenian insurance stories, which by the way, uh, to this day sticks in my craw because, you know, well, Tina, you know, you explain, you explain what's going on because you, you've, you've been with uh, the firm for almost close to 20 years. You don't even look that old. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty much as old as these cases are, which is the same year I joined your firm, the same year that the case uh, was filed, interestingly enough. So yeah, we filed this lawsuit um, after we gave the LA Times, I don't know how many opportunities to right their wrongs. So they started this campaign and, you know, all of this is it's an interesting read. So I would encourage anybody who's interested in the topic to actually read the complaint. It's long, but it really, I think, details everything that occurred since 2021, where it seems like they started this campaign of targeting Mark for, 
I mean, the theory is that they missed the boat on breaking the Tom Girardi story. And once that story broke, they covered that, you know, as frequently as possible. And they somehow thought that if this was what happened with Girardi, that Mark being another prominent attorney in California, this must also be the case with him. And they just decided what the narrative would be. A couple of differences. I realize both of our names start with a G and are seven letters. I understand that we both have um, housewives who like to spend time in uh, Beverly Hills. And I understand that uh, we're both the uh, so-called prominent lawyers. But, you know, what's so crazy about this, uh, the, these these people, is the insanity of their theories. I mean, they I started hearing from a woman, who, a widow, who was a retiree, who was my banker 15 years ago, and they showed up at her house and were banging on her door. I had a guy, a client, Tina knows well, um, who is knocking on the door of 80, recovering from a heart attack, and they were trying to, to, and he's he's telling me what these people are crazy. They're making these wild accusations. I had lawyers who used to work for me who they tried to get to violate attorney-client privilege. It was like the wildest uh, exam- things I've ever heard by three reporters. I mean, Paul Pringle, who I've got a nickname for, but I won't repeat it here. You can probably figure it out. Um, was a reporter who trespassed at the house trying to, uh, to, to get into the, get into the house. Like who does that uh, in the middle of the night? And then Harriet Ryan, who's a Nancy Grace protege. I mean, that was her claim to fame. She was at court TV trying to be another uh, Nancy Grace. And this other guy, uh, Matt Hamilton, who um, uh, is equally as inept and kind of dense as uh, Harriet. And it no matter what you told them in real time, and I'd pick up the phone, I would talk to them, I would try to get get through. But mind you, what happened was, um, here I'm telling the whole story. Sorry, Tina, but I get so worked no, that's up. Okay, but I just want you to contextualize that this this didn't start off about the Armenian genocide insurance litigation. This started with pretty much let's see if we can it find was it. US, it was USC. I'll tell you where it happened. I, I had a client who I protected the client. They kept basically calling her names. They kept saying uh, they my client was a source for their story. Uh, which they all got much accolades and attention about, but they were denigrating my client. I wasn't going to let them do that. And then they just lied. They put out a Pringle himself just, and I've got the emails where he just lies through his teeth. He is the, and you know what? He want, he let him sue me because I'm going to say Paul Pringle is a liar. And, 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 uh, and I'm not the only one who says it. He b- published a book. Uh, and his former, four of his former editors and associates all said he's a lying sack. And Harriet Ryan is just, I, uh, where do I even start with her as a reporter? She's, uh, she, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning. They should, uh, they should recall her Pulitzer Prize. But they basically tried, I mean, the story here is that they tried for a long time to find something on Mark by contacting a lot of, again, as he said, his former banker from 15 years ago, former lawyers that worked at the firm, uh, several judges, priests, you know, all sorts of people. And when they came up short and nobody gave them what they were hoping to hear, then they dredged up this really old case, which is from 2005. And it was a very complex class action because it involved a settlement board that was in France. And there were, I don't even know how how many documents, but they find a couple of disgruntled people who didn't get paid in a class action as if I was the one who was approving or denying class actions and they go and they get disgruntled people to rewrite history and ignores the the fact that I was the one who exposed all of the defalcations. It's it's really but, astonishing. Yeah, and how it went down is they contacted both Mark and Brian Kabatek, who was his uh, co class counsel in the litigation, and they asked. It was sixty four really, really burdensome questions about a case that's almost 20 years old. So you can only imagine how difficult it is to remember specific transactions. They, they wanted to know where you know, specific checks went. And they took the time, at, I mean, at great expense, both our office and Brian Kabatek's office spent 
an enormous amount of time pulling together this information in the middle of trial schedules and everybody's busy and nobody's getting paid to do this. And everybody dropped what they were doing to satisfy these reporters and to show them that they were absolutely wrong on the path that they were. And we gave them all sorts of documentation and they just wouldn't relent. They just, they, they published the story anyway. It's so defamatory when you read the, the entirety of the um, article and when you compare it, we have, you know, one one letter in specific where there's 24 really detailed, uh, it's a 24 page, I'm sorry, letter to the 64 questions. And it's really detailed answers. And when you just look side by side as to the story they published and what the answers were and how they cherry picked and twisted the words, I think it's um, it's kind of a slam dunk here. Yeah. And, you know, they uh, they they hide behind. Uh, the uh, or they're going to hide behind the anti-slap. And you know what? I'll take that risk. That's why people, that's why they get away with what they get away with. Somebody tweeted today, they're already morally bankrupt, Mark. Take them down and make them financially bankrupt. And there's a point there. The people complain about the media. This was the media um, uh, this was media malpractice on steroids, and I plan on I plan on holding them accountable. Thank you, Tina Glandian, for letting me join your stable of alpha males. I hope. Well, hope- I was going to say, sadly, I firsthand saw the effect that the the reporting had on you because this was your, um, I would say, the proudest you had been of anything in your career was the prosecution of these cases, which was very very challenging because they were so old and they seemed like lost causes and you and Brian really did, um, you know, a tremendous job settling those cases for the amount of money you did. And then to have people come in who don't understand what the process was, who don't know the facts and who were just intent on smearing your name uh, with the publication of this. And it's complex. So a lot of people reading it won't understand even all of the, uh, kind of nuances and the transactions and what took place, but it certainly leaves an impression that you guys were responsible for mishandling money, and it's it's not fair. And I saw that the effect it had on you, and you know, and one of the things that I will tell you that betrays their. By the way, we've got a declaration from a professor at Loyola Law School who they also engaged in a defamation campaign. I've got a sworn declaration from him as, as oh, to what they, they said and what they did. They accused you guys of criminal activity, you and Brian. So. Yeah. So guess what? Now I'm accusing them and I brought the receipts so I can hardly wait to uh, get them, uh, get past slap and slap the holy uh, bejesus out of them. I'm sure I'll see this. Oh, by the way, Gary, you will love this. They actually listened to reasonable doubt. I can see that right here in the 81st paragraph. Oh, anyone, look at this. Anyone who wants to go uh, go read the entire complaint, it references his weekly podcast. Not by name, but we all know what he's talking, what they're talking we about. We can amend, Gary. I could I could amend and add reasonable doubt if you want. Uh, yeah, because a- I told him, I said the move, the Biden move was a political symbol, which now recognizes the Armenian genocide, which now opened the doors because if they had known if this idiot squad had understood the legality of it, the one case that we didn't win on was a case where they said, because Obama did not recognize the genocide, that that executive action could not be um, overturned by virtue of our judicial actions. And it was a political question, basically. Right. Now, once Biden recognized the genocide, that that undercuts that opinion, that Ninth Circuit opinion. By the way, I I argued the case in the Ninth Circuit. I argued to the in-bank because the, the decision had flipped two to one. They then brought out the in-bank. So it was very important at the time when it was Gary, you and I and Adam discussed it. Yeah. They listened to it and they mentioned it at the bottom of one of their articles about now I was going to file lawsuits. And you know, it's starting to click that maybe there was more to their agenda. And I'll just leave that right there because otherwise Tina will get mad because we have discovery. Don't worry, Mark. I know. I know. And we'll, we'll get to it, but it it has been uh, the, the reason this has already resonated in just two days is the community knows the Armenian community knows that the LA times has, has been one of the worst um, purveyors of Azeri and Turkish propaganda. They have either deliberately ignored or engaged in the both sides of them. Um, they have a history, by the way. I mean, they were forced 
At the same time, I was filing these lawsuits and settling this case in 2006. The uh, LA Times in 2006 in real time, I don't know if you remember this, Tina, they were still calling it the alleged Armenian genocide. That's how that's how bad this uh, this once proud uh, publication was. So I can hardly wait to get all these people on their own. That's I'm going to get off my soapbox. And, and, <laughs> well, I'm going to zen on a Friday. What do you say, Tina? Tina, no. top our top G of G and G. Will you come back uh, after the? I believe there's two hearings next week. Correct? Tuesday and Friday. Yeah, I'm happy to come back whenever you guys want me. Great. Well, we've got a lot of G's here. We got a Garrigus, a Glandian, a Gary, and a Gary. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of G's. Thank you, Tina G. Thank you, Thank Tina. You, of course. Well, welcome. This is a guest that we have not had in quite a, a while, but not for a lack of his podcasting. My uh, business partner, my law partner, my uh, closest confidant, Ben Mysalis, who uh, has, uh, along with his two brothers, Brett and Jordy, founded the Midas Touch uh, podcast. Uh, and last yesterday, I saw our other friend of the show, Karen Friedman Agnifilo on MSNBC, and she was identified as podcast host Midas Media Network as well. So quite a little empire you're building over there, Ben. Welcome back. Good to be here on Reasonable Doubt. Really, this is where it all started. And uh, I remember the early roots and the early days of Reasonable Doubt very well. Yeah, almost 10 years ago. So I wanted, I thought today... Friday, because you know how much we love to get to Friday in the finish line. Gary's heard that a million times. Absolutely. Uh, but I thought we would talk because you know, the expectation was this whole week uh, that Trump would get indicted in the state court in New York. I think that the reason for that was, and I think Karen was the one who kind of explained it to me. I, I, I readily admit state court criminal in Manhattan is like I always uh, um, I always liken it to the uh, bar in the Star Wars movie. Uh, it's a different place. I mean, it is that alien. And Karen had told me and told us in the audience that the invitation to Trump to testify is the basically penultimate act before the indictment comes. You don't have that, obviously, I think I explained in California. Then you combine that with Trump tweeting he was going to get arrested on Tuesday, which never made sense to me in the in the sense of a, a strict arrest because it's a state court case. They're not going to bust into Mar-a-Lago um, and deal with Secret Service. So I don't know how he's going to get arrested, I guess, uh, in the common parlance, as opposed to surrendering or whatever you want to say. I guess technically that could be an arrest. But what's your what's your observation as to what's happening? Why the delay? I think one of the things that Karen Friedman Agnifilo said also is you really got to prepare for this, right? It's an unprecedented event. Um, time still remains on the side of Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg um, in terms of the statute of limitation not yet expiring. So I think he wants to dot all his I's, cross all of his T's, make sure his office is safe. Uh, not only is it unprecedented in the fact that it would be the first time a former president is indicted, but the way Donald Trump is acting is completely unprecedented. I mean, calling Alvin Bragg a scum, calling Alvin Bragg an animal, calling for death and destruction, posting a photo of himself holding a baseball bat, depicting him bludgeoning Alvin Bragg, which he subsequently deleted, which may actually give rise, and Karen Friedman Agnifilo said this, to an inciting a riot count uh, as well. And so, you know, I and there are real consequences to that. There's been multiple death threats. Someone sent a letter to Alvin Bragg's office uh, on Friday saying, I'm going to kill you, Alvin Bragg, with a white powdery substance, which turned out to be harmless. But nonetheless, the threat was made. Russian trolls are calling bomb threats in on a daily basis. And so 
Trump's threats are having real world consequences as well. And I think Alvin Bragg is considering all of this, but putting the safety of his office first and foremost. And by the way, I also host a podcast called Political Beatdown with Michael Cohen, where we get some good firsthand insight. And Cohen says he hasn't been called to be a rebuttal witness again to Robert Costello, who the Manhattan District Attorney's Office called, which also led me to believe that uh, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office didn't feel that Robert Costello's testimony last week caused any significant injury to their presentation. So that's fascinating because that's and you anticipated, obviously, where I was headed. So when you get the invitation, when the DA gives the invitation, like I say, this is not something that happens in a lot of other jurisdictions, but it happens in New York. You get this invitation. So they obviously you, you most times you would decline that invitation, although there have been cases where defendants or the accused, they're not defendants yet, unless there's an indictment, have um have actually gone in and testified. I've I've done it once uh with a client. I know Harlan has done it once or twice. Uh so they sent in Costello. Costello was either an advisor or at least an attorney-client privilege had uh, had arguably, not necessarily, but arguably been formed with your other podcast partner, Michael Cohen. In fact, they, at one point, I don't know at whose behest, Michael had waived that. Costello was put in there presumably at the behest of the Trump team to impugn Michael Cohen, and that because the Trump team, I believe, as part of their defense, wanted to show that he said one thing then, he's saying something else now, you can't believe him, get that in front of the grand jury. Now, Costello came out of that, and the witnesses, one of these uh, kind of raging arguments for years, but it's already been settled, was Grand jury secrecy. Prosecutors used to, in the old days, say that witnesses couldn't talk, but that's uh, been laid to rest. So Costello came out. Costello said, they barely asked me any questions. And I basically told them that they had cherry picked documents. Do I have that right? Yeah. And so Costello, I think, went in there with a plan. And as the Mike Tyson expression is, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face. So Costello was going to go in there with hundreds of documents and make this presentation. And then I think the grand jury just had a few questions and then see you later. Right. And when he came out and did that, then my guess is just knowing prosecutors like I do, that the prosecution wanted to make sure that whatever this presentation was, mind you, this is not unheard of. Um, when we did, when Michael Jackson, when we knew there was a grand jury, Ben Brofman and I put together binders of information that we delivered to the grand jury and we wanted the grand jury to see. I'm not so sure that the Manhattan DA who is very, they've got a lot of sharp guys there. I'm not so sure that they didn't say, okay, time out. We're going to put those documents together. We'll present those documents. So that there's not an argument of hide the balls later, or so to speak. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that they probably previewed before Costello came in everything that Costello was going to say. Look, it is not a secret that at some point in time, Michael Cohen was Donald Trump's lawyer and was acting in furtherance of Donald Trump's ultimate scheme. And that's Michael Cohen's presentation, in essence, which was, yeah, I I did these things on his behalf. So you charged me, but you should have charged the person as well who I was doing this for. So frankly, I think it's the first thing that the grand jury heard, and they wanted to introduce, here are the witnesses that you're going to hear. Here's where Michael Cohen fits in. Here's where Stormy Daniels fits in. Here's what the actual documents show. And let's not forget, ultimately, this case is a document-heavy case, although there's not a lot of hot docs when you think about it. But you can see the payment. You can see the checks. You can see the corporation that was opened up. You get the testimony. You make the presentation. And I think it's a fairly seamless case. But yeah, the prosecution would be completely, completely moronic if they were going to hide the ball and act like the history didn't happen. But to me, the history is known. 
you know, I, I like that Donald Trump and I don't like it, but it's 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 humorous that him and the right wing uh, MAGA crew is, you know, they're posting all of these documents as though they've uncovered it for the first time. Like, aha, here was the letter that Michael Cohen wrote in 2018. Like if we were following that, you know, he wrote that letter in 2018. So this is my uh, if I obviously look at these things from a criminal defense standpoint. And if I'm the prosecutor or if I'm somebody who has a a grand scheme to indict Trump, to take him off the the field, so to speak, I certainly don't think I would start with this case. I um, I think the I think this is the we of the three or four cases. I don't think that they're going to I could be wrong. I I, I don't want to. Um, make necessarily predictions on prosecutions, but I think that the I think the classified docs lost a lot of air um, when the Biden uh, and then the Pence um, situation came about. Uh, I think the Georgia case has got to to my mind that is a tough case to defend, and I say that in this sense: you've got him on tape. You're going to get jury instructions, presumably, that'll go first of all to a to to a uh, to a petted jury. Uh, and what he is asking, you're going to have to. He's going to have to get up there and talk about what he meant when he was telling the officials to go get me eleven thousand more votes. That, to me, is a is a case that you can, as a prosecutor, you can present, and that would force your client to get up there and explain it away. This case, I think, could be tied up. When I say this case, the Manhattan DA case, I think there's so many defenses to this. I think there's so many issues, the kind of the hybrid, what I call the Frankensteinian compilation of theories, that I just don't know that if I were prosecuting these cases or if I was coordinating, and by the way, uh, anybody who doesn't think that the prosecutors are talking amongst themselves is um, is naive. They obviously are. And I just think this is the the weakest of the cases. What do you say? Well, I think the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is, is still, if you take them at their word, they're investigating the criminal version of what New York Attorney General Letitia James is pursuing in the civil case, which is set to go to trial on October 2nd of 2023. And that's for the fraudulent valuation scheme over uh, a decade where it's alleged the Trump organization, Donald Trump and his adult children uh, fraudulently gave these valuations of these properties that had far lower appraisal values and they inflated it to get these benefits from insurance companies companies, from lenders, and uh, in in terms of other tax benefits. And Alvin Bragg says he's still pursuing that case as well. So, So let's assume for the sake of argument, you're right, and this case is the weakest, but it will get tied up. Look what Donald Trump's done already this week. Look at all the unforced errors that he's made, even with the mere threat of a possible indictment looming. He's potentially walked into other criminal charges. Now, on the one hand, you could have Alvin Bragg's a complete eight-dimensional chess mastermind. On the other hand, Donald Trump is the exact opposite. He's got the mierdest touch and just is the biggest idiot ever and continues to uh, bring on more and more more criminal potential crimes he could be charged with through the threats that he's making. But ultimately, assume you're right. Assume that this case does get ultimately tied up in various um, appeals and, and, and other types of procedures that can make this drag on and on and on. Alvin Bragg, meanwhile, is still criminally investigating, you know, the fraud valuation case that has a civil trial um, that goes October 2nd, 2023. You have the E. Jean Carroll civil rape and defamation case, which, which goes is to trial three April, weeks, 20, right? April 25th, where yeah. Judge Kaplan has has ordered an anonymous jury. Then you're going to have Fawny Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, file. Then you're going to have Jack Smith file something. Um, 
probably much heavier on the financial crimes relating to the insurrection than people think. He was the head of the Public Integrity Division, and that is his specialty. But I think there'll be other charges brought there as well. And Alvin Bragg then kind of gets the credit for being the first. He could evaluate what happens in the New York Attorney General's case, still bring those charges as another case in a superseding indictment, um, but doesn't let the this this clock run out. And so this could all be by chance. Alvin Bragg could have been like, look, first, we're going to go after the Trump organization, get those 17 felony convictions. Then let's file this discreet one. Then let's go for the grand slam. But it is, you have to admit, it is coalescing in a way that is at the very least completely freaking Donald Trump out. And he's making every misstep that you would probably as a criminal defense lawyer be shaking your head if you ever represented someone like that. You know, it's interesting when you talk about, so the people understand the superseding indictment. If you're not in the weeds, one of the things, it's a prosecutorial tool that is used all the time. Uh, the It's interesting to me. They first went to trial, that office, the Manhattan DA, against the Trump organization, and they used the accountant who uh, to cooperate and to, and to kind of tag the Trump organization. That was kind of almost a test run, if you will, because they then got jurors to come out. And the jurors, I mentioned this to Gary, it reminded me of a case I had tried against the city of Glendale, uh, where the jurors came out afterwards and they they said, why didn't you have the district attorney at the table? We would have, we would have found them liable too. And this was basically what the jurors said in that against in the Trump organization. If you had had Trump there, we would have convicted him too. So there, I think that gives wind at the back, but long way of setting up for the fact that if if they start to get in trouble, and I can think of 10 different ways that they can in the case that at least has been out there in the public, because we don't know. There's a lot of speculation as to what the case is, what the theory is that the grand jury is looking at. If it is a false expense report that is a misdemeanor that is then elevated or upgraded to a felony on the basis of the cover-up. Um, I understand. But the prosecutor can always supersede on the case that Ben just detailed. And that is the threat that the prosecutor and the leverage that the prosecutor has. And I understand the I'm the first one in the door if you're Alvin Bragg. And also I understand just like you don't want to be either a Trump or a Trump uh, aficionado indicted in Washington, D.C. I think the last place that Trump wants to be tried uh, next to Washington, D.C. would be Manhattan. Wouldn't you agree? I would absolutely agree. And and even with the facts, I mean, we're talking about you know, at the most basic level, paying hush money payments to a porn star that you had sex with, and then you wanted to cover it up and you had sex with the porn star while your new wife just gave birth to your first child. Like you kind of look like a disgusting person. And then you're out there saying no affair and calling Stormy Daniels horse face. I mean, uh, which by the way, she does take in stride, get the pun, um and um and actually has a great deal of fun with the horse face. I I and she was talking about sitting on her horse ranch the other day in one of the tweets. I think she she takes a lot of grief and people call her skank and she embraces it and turns on it. Um I I don't know. I just think of the three cases that one gives me the most pause in terms of why do you bring this thing? I also think there's a a, a legit statute of limitations issue here. And interestingly, for Donald Trump, just like in other areas um, in New York, the COVID state of emergency tolling the statute of limitations may end up getting tested. I, I agree with you. I think that the statute of limitations is running up. And look, I, I, I think Alvin Bragg, um, again, we don't know all the facts. We know, though, that Alvin Bragg did not pursue the Cy Vance case immediately uh, regarding the broader financial crimes. That's why you had Mark Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn, the special prosecutors that Cy Vance, the former district attorney in Manhattan, brought in. They resigned. And I think you have Alvin Bragg 
pursuing a very methodical strategy and you know whether he is playing eight dimensional chess or just working out this way i think we should give him credit because he is playing it where to your point and and what i had said before that do the test run against the trump organization see how trump's lawyers react see how the jury reacts the jury hated trump's lawyers they hated the presentation they hated the trump witnesses and they had they really wanted Trump to be criminally indicted. That's what the lesson learned from that case is. So then you pursue this next one with Stormy Daniels, which you kind of move, uh, you, you move a little bit further, you inch a little bit closer to the end zone, and then you can always have the superseding indictment. But again, this is not happening in a vacuum because you have Fulton County criminal investigations. You have special counsel Jack Smith's two criminal investigations and grand juries. People don't talk about this one, but you have multiple Southern District of New York criminal investigations into Trump media, including a recent uh, money laundering. Uh, Was that in connection? I read something on that. Was that in connection with the SPAC? That's in connection with the SPAC. So Patrick Orlando, who's the chairperson of the SPAC and CEO, was just fired. For this was terminated from the uh, from the seat that he had on the board as the chairman. I think he still is a director, but was fired as the CEO because he arranged this loan uh, that was linked to Russian oligarchs through a bank in the Caribbean island called Dominica from a bank called Paxum Bank that has these somewhat shady dealings. And that's how Trump media survived in December of 2021 into 2022 with this $8 million loan. SDNY is investigating that as well. Wow. It's a, well, we're going to bring you back because I think next week there's going to be quite a bit going on. I mean, would be my suspicion and I'll leave it as a cliffhanger. And for those of you who don't know, Ben has a legal podcast also with Michael Popak and Karen Agnaflo, uh called Legal AF. What does the AF stand for, Ben? Uh, AF stands for Analysis Friends. So the Legal Analysis Friends is Legal AF podcast. Also, check us out at the Midas Touch podcast subscribe to the Midas touch podcast search wherever you get your audio podcast search for the legal af podcast search for political beatdown podcast and you can also check us out at youtube by searching Midas touch we're about to hit 1 million subscribers this week on our youtube channel wow look at that look at that congratulations ben quite a quite a feather in your cap and to the listeners, Gary and I will be back on Sunday for the the Sunday Altar of Bard. Thank you so much, Ben. Great to be here and shout out to all the Reasonable Doubt listeners and shout out to the Midas Mighty. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Reasonable Doubt. Subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash reasonable doubt podcast.